Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is CMOS MD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Damon Broyles. Dr. Broyles is currently the VP Clinical Innovation for Mercy Technology Services, the technical support arm of Mercy Healthcare and a division of Mercy's Office of Transformation. Mercy is a $6 billion healthcare organization headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and the fifth largest Catholic health system in the United States. Mercy is a top five best performing large healthcare system, as noted by Truven for multiple years running, and MTS has been critical in garnering the Hims Davies Award Chime Most Wired, and numerous HIMSS Stage 7 hospital designations, among others. Mercy also utilizes the single largest unified instance of EPIC in the United States. Dr. Broyles is a board-certified diplomate with the American Board of Family Medicine, a fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians, and holds a subspecialty certification in clinical informatics from the American Board of Preventative Medicine. He trained at the University of Missouri-Columbia and completed a chief residency at Mercy St. Louis Hospital in 2004. He also serves as the medical director for the Multi-Cancer Early Detection Program in Mercy's newly formed Department of Precision Medicine. Dr. Broyles is an entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial and health IT mentor, an advisor, and health tech startup coach. He participates on the Community of Health Innovation Leaders for the Global STL Initiative and serves on a number of boards, including the Missouri Biotechnology Board of Directors and the HIMSS Midwest Gateway Chapter Board of Directors. Dr. Broyles has a diverse and experienced background with deep expertise and value-based care. Prior to his current role with Mercy, Dr. Broyles served as the Chief Medical Information Officer for St. Anthony's Medical Center. His additional leadership experience includes serving as President of the St. Louis Academy of Family Physicians in 2012 and appointments to a wide swath of hospitals and health system committees. Dr. Broyles, Damon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alan and Joshua. It's a pleasure to join you. Well, it's amazing to have you on. You've led such a fascinating career that has truly been centered around the patient and the impact that you can have at scale using technology. I'm really curious to start the conversation. What was your initial drive to join healthcare? My sort of first experiences with healthcare and health technology date back to very early childhood. My father was involved in sales for Hewlett-Packard and worked his way into the health technology arm at uh, Hewlett-Packard. So he was selling to hospitals, to ICUs, to cardiologists. He was bringing home the technology to, to prep himself for the, the next day's conversation, to make sure he understood um, you know, how the, the, the technology worked. So he was hooking me up to an EKG to get some practice on it. And I had an opportunity during all of that exposure to to be asking him, tell me more about this. And you know, he was fascinated and intrigued and curious about all the different areas that he was being exposed to. Frankly, was was passing that curiosity and that love of science and biology down to me as as he was doing uh, all of those uh, uh, activities. And I was going to ask you, so you know, you got into primary care. And then about 10 years ago, you started getting more into health IT and digital health. You became a CMIO. How exactly did that happen? Uh, well, I think the specific specialty of family medicine and primary care, expand that out. It, there's a certain way of, of solving problems, being able to triage problems, being comfortable with ambiguity. Uh, oftentimes, patients will have you know a multiplicity of symptoms and 
we're not sure which is driving them and maybe it's a couple of different chronic conditions. I think the specialty and the training in family medicine, there's something pretty specific about that that, that prepares you for health IT and makes you makes you very comfortable with it because the diagnostic process, the collaboration, the trying to understand the ambiguity of something, there's a lot of similarities in terms of uh, the work that you do as a primary care physician and, and the and the work that you do as a as a healthcare technologist. And so um, I think that uh, preparation was was really key, but I also was able to just really from an early stage understand where the technology was going to be helpful to solve problems that were really vexing and, and frustrating and that didn't have a, a great solution. So as we became aware that, that health IT was going to be a thing, it had the good fortune of being in a newer physician organization where there was lots of opportunity to extend into leadership pretty easily. In fact, for a lot of it was just, do you, did you say yes? You know, there was, you know, committee work and, you know, work on uh, within leadership. It was just a matter of saying, yeah, I'm interested. And so what I found at that point in time, there were there, while some folks um, may think, oh, well, that's just not in my wheelhouse. It's not my ballywick. I'm not necessarily interested. There was always something to learn. Just there's always something to learn in medicine. Um, and so, you know, being there, listening, understanding, it gave me a real appreciation for the systemness of things and how really you didn't have silos. You had the appearance of silos in some cases, but you didn't necessarily have anything that was a device unto itself or an issue unto itself. And there was always connections to be similar to how the primary care approaches organ systems and the physiology of, of humans that, you know, it's always viewed in kind of the holistic manner. And so as I got more and more into doing things in a leadership realm, I had an opportunity because frankly, um, I was savvy with computers. I didn't have any particular training in data science or programming, but I was curious and interested. I was one of the younger physicians in the group, so there was some bias there about EHRs and, hey, why don't you go figure that out for us and report back? So it was a learn by doing type of scenario and uh, had the, the double-edged sword of being able to design, customize, pick out that all, you know, the, e, the EHR that our physician organization was going to and was jumping in at that point in time. But it was all, it was new. So the design and improve the system, you had to bring a, a technology solution to a workflow and coordinate those two things. So that's where I initially uh, made a foray into health IT and then realized, gosh, I, I enjoy this. I enjoy the creativity. I enjoy the challenge of there's not a specific answer to this question and you have to innovate uh, a solution. Um, I like the teaching, the ability to explain how technology uh, was going to enable better care of patients to the other physicians in the group. And so it moved from an ad hoc uh, position, things that I was doing on the side into more of a formalized role a medical directorship. I had a just wonderful set of mentors. One in particular at that point in time uh, was a great friend and a fantastic CIO. Ended up being the CIO of the hospital as well and said, hey, you're doing this for the docs. I want you to come do this for the hospital in the same capacity and work alongside me. And so that 
it was just a whole new learning experience. Uh, there was all of the the administrative aspects of a hospital. It's a city unto itself. And being in technology allowed me to kind of get a, a window and a lens into all of those areas. So you're learning about the EVS uh, jobs and responsibilities. You're learning about um, you know, physical and cybersecurity. You're learning about the rev cycle um, because technology has tendrils into all of those things. And while the EHR and the clinical systems is where you spend, you spend the, the bulk of your time, it spreads into the whole other set of, of hospital disciplines. And so if you were willing to listen and uh, go to meetings, participate, um, you just, you could pick up so much. And so I was just trying to be as much of a sponge as I could. And there was just constantly new things to learn. Can I ask you, you think back to being a CMIO for the first time 10 years ago and what it meant to be a CMIO back then and compare and contrast to 2022 and what it means to be a CMIO today, um, what would you say are the major differences in the role? Uh, I, that's a great question. And we've actually inside our informatics group, we call it CMIO version 1.0 versus version 2.3. And it's really gone through some evolutions over time. I think where it started out, it was really more blocking and tackling inside of the EHR. And whether that was the implementation and that implementation phase for health systems and provider groups lasted for a good long while, but it was more about just helping people adapt to the the idea of an electronic clinical record, doing housekeeping efforts like making sure order sets were all put in place and that they were curated and moving into some decision support. But it was really just focused on the interior of the EHR and the creature comforts and not a whole lot of extensibility. We started seeing that extensibility in terms of patient portals and moving outside of the EHR. And that was CMIO 2.0, because now you, you had to pay attention to how your integration points were lining up with both the patient facing and the provider facing, and making sure that you didn't have disconnect between those two. And that uh, clinical operating system was really hitting on all cylinders. Um, and it was allowing for the patients to start to be a participant in their care. And, uh, you know, that's when we just started to see the addition of folks from outside of healthcare coming in and lending us their, their science and their perspectives and their sort of different set of eyes on how this could be utilized by the patient, what it needs to look like, how you need to keep cohesive standards of development, how you integrate those with the strategy of the organization or the hospital and health system. And so that was uh, we are really a an interesting period of time, and we saw some EHR developers rise to the challenge, some not so much, and we were dealing with that those issues at the same time as we were really striving and hoping for good health information exchange. And there was a lot of gnashing of teeth and uh, and strife around that in particular, and we just didn't have the tool sets that we needed to have. But once we started to, then you see this evolution, you get to CMIO 3.0, where you're really coordinating all of this outside information, all of this health information exchange, and making it all work. We're not there yet. There's still a, a tremendous amount of noise versus signal in the system. It's better. We have great uh, partners in the vendor space. We have good collaborations with uh, our 
our regional health information exchanges with new enterprises that want to help in that area. There's a huge amount of interest in making sure that we've got uh, curation of all of that data so that it becomes more information and knowledge and really the ability to have actionable tools and information now instead of just the onslaught of that noise. The steps beyond that are where I would say it becomes less chief medical information officer and more chief digital information officer. And it is just hugely incumbent in that type of a position to be ensuring that you're deliberately architecting coordination and connection between all of the the realms of the health system. Because it is so easy to have high functioning teams that are working very hard, but but you know, especially in big health systems, missing some of the other great work that that they could be bringing together to accelerate and move even faster. And digital health is so dynamic now that there is no other choice than to move very fast. Yeah, Damon. One thing that I really appreciate about you, you're bringing up now the idea that working collaboratively with others in the space, maybe it's vendors. What I really appreciate about you is you've been on the other side of the table as well. So back in 2017, you actually co-founded Wear for Care, and that was a chatbot-based mobile application using NLP, which was basically with the goal to reduce unnecessary ER visits. You're also a board member, like I mentioned in the bio, for a ton of different startups and incubators. I'm really curious, like, how did you land into the world of digital health startups? And you were so focused on building out the EHR at Mercy originally. When did you have time to do this and how did you get into that world? Well, I I came to the realization that the challenges that I most enjoyed were the ones where vendor, whatever EHR you were using, you articulated a problem and they came back and said, we have no idea. Uh, and so, and then you're, you know, kind of forces the function of, of working with really bright, very collaborative people inside your system and creating a combination of workflow and technology and stringing together a couple of different things to come up with something just de novo that didn't exist previously. And so doing that inside of the system, using the tools that were available to repurposing them. And that was the most enjoyable activities that, that we were doing. Um, and so that kind of gave me a little bit of a light bulb moment. I was like, we have some opportunities in the St. Louis area. I mean, we have incubation accelerator with geography for a couple different industries, but healthcare was one of them that was emerging. There was a whole bunch of very uh, smart, visionary people that were creating a district. It's called Cortex. One of the tenants of that innovation uh, ecosystem was healthcare just because of the the vast array of healthcare um, entities that exist in St. Louis. At one point in time, I was sitting in my car, moving from my, my provider role in transition that particular day. And it was during lunchtime. And there was a news article that came over the radio and talked about a a Sling Health demo day that evening that was going to be in the Cortex area. And just kind of on a lark, I said, hey, that sounds interesting. Sounds like there are some some people that, that are there that are probably doing some pretty cool stuff. Why don't I go down there and, and uh, tonight and see what happens? So it was, it was kind of serendipitous, which is sort of the point of those districts, right? Innovation districts are designed to sort of aggregate serendipitous collisions and, and, and bring ideas together. And that's what I found out, uh, you know, very quickly, just just realized there is so much critical mass uh, of creative, inventive, entrepreneurial folks in this area. 
And there are so many problems to solve that I couldn't not be involved. And so happened upon, as is the case with those types of, of organizations and areas, just some spectacularly intelligent individuals became acquainted with a good friend of mine who's a very bright computer science PhD who was in the midst of beginning a, an enterprise to solve this problem of overutilization in the ER space and started you know, in a informal capacity of just advising, giving basic information around where value was headed and how that was applicable to what they were doing. And see, the more we talked, the more we just said, this is something that we should, should do together. And that's how that came to be. It is a little bit probably of maybe right tech, wrong time, because right now that idea is commonplace. At that point in time, it was a little bit of a challenge talking to docs about, hey, we're going to have a robot decide where your patient should go. And I, you know, that, that was, uh, seemed a little bit more uh, uh, striking to, to them, uh, but there was an immense amount of things to learn in, in, in that type of an endeavor, and not the least of which was just making great contacts and a network of brilliant people um, that still rely on today and always bouncing ideas off of them. I'm sure you've seen startups trying to break into the hospital health system space who sometimes done things well, sometimes made, made a lot of the mistakes that, that we all make try when we do it. Are, are there any kind of top one or two mistakes that you see startups trying to make when they're breaking into the hospital health system space where if you could just advise them on one thing to, to do or not do, like this ends up being the top of the list? A uh, couple, two will come to mind right away. So number one, just not quite understanding, and it's not necessarily their job to, to understand right away, but not understanding the complexity of the sales cycle in healthcare. It is su such a massive industry and there's so many sort of different, the stakeholders sit over here and the purchasing power sits over here and the ability to tell a, diff a different but pertinent story to each of those stakeholders is really important. And frankly, that's where folks like me can help because it's so opaque and so, you know, and even really experienced companies from on an international scale you know, coming into the United States, they need some advising and, uh, you know, we really need some help themselves, even though they're, you know, already established, very mature. The Some of the things in the American health system are so arcane and esoteric that it's just, you just have to have a little bit of a guide, somebody to kind of speak the languages of the tribes. The other thing is really understanding if you're a product or a feature and because being a feature um, of a large EHR is much more of a challenge to develop a fully mature product. Now you can, and I've seen companies do it, but it is it's so, it can be so paralyzing to to your new company to have a Cerner or an Epic, one of those large 800 pound gorillas, say, "Well, you know, that's on our roadmap," or that could be on our, you know, it, it might be on a roadmap. Even something like that is really problematic. It's a challenge that that is very hard to overcome if you're trying to sell into stakeholders who think that. Maybe that's just something that's coming down the road at some point in time. And so those are, those are I think, important lessons, um, understanding your competition, like the full scale of your competition, not just something that has the same form factor, but you know other things that solve a problem in a very different way that sort of preempt the need for your technology. 
that's that, that that's huge as well. Okay. I love that. One of the common threads that you've been talking about is addressing what a problem actually is. So when you were first getting started, you were listening to patients all the time, and that's how you would come up with your solution is by really knowing what the problem is that you're trying to solve. So I really love that. Another thing around frameworks and language that you've really been actively working at changing is shared some really wise insight around a hospital being a cost center. Uh, as opposed to how it's maybe traditionally in the arcane view of what the hospital is and really how this idea can change in the vocabulary that we use and the metrics that we're using to determine success. Things around total length of stay, for instance, and total cost of care. I'm really curious, like, what's your rationale behind this idea of a hospital being a cost center? Well, I think it really pivots on and is supported by the shift to value. And that's not going to be a surprise to, to, to either of you. The understanding and the language and vocabulary change that has to occur there is just fundamental. And it takes a, a while. I mean, you, you have systems that have built success on being a pipeline um, where, you know, the, the ultimate goal was efficiency in processes and moving folks through um, where volumes were the most important thing and that anything that that increased volume was something that was uh, lifted up and, and, and tried to, to make extensible, you know, we're trying to learn lessons from it. And as we shift to a platform, as we shift to um, something that, that helps a patient navigate the right interventions for getting upstream of illness, shifting things left, then you just are entirely moving the metrics of success inside a huge organization where folks may not quite understand that yet. And so, and if you don't, if you're not deliberate about how you're structuring those conversations and that transition, then it may be clear to a set of senior leaders, but you're, you've lost everyone else along the way and they don't understand how it is that, that they're going to continue to be successful in the mission of the health system. And you may have a couple of folks in different divisions that get it, but you're going to have a lot that don't. And so being able to tie the full measure of success in, in a, in a value-based paradigm to all of your strategy is just critically important. Let me ask you, Damon, I think it's one of the challenges that, that we've seen in the market is even though there's an ongoing shift to value-based care, it's still been slow, I guess. And so you're, you're still doing fee-for-service, you're still doing some sort of value-based care, straddling both, I guess. It seems difficult to me to change the mindset of folks when you can't just focus on, on one, I guess, reimbursement model. Is that an accurate statement or it, you see things differently yeah, lately? It is a challenge for sure. And you have to understand that you are in a transitory period. And so you really have to look for those transitory ideas that, that as you move, are throwing off value in both a, a fee-for-service model and a forward-looking value-based care model. And that's actually a lesson that we talk about quite a bit with the startup community, because you're, you're, it's very difficult to just make a business case on this is going to benefit all of your value-based initiatives. Because frankly, that is a that's hard to get to the actual financial return on investment because it presupposes that a whole bunch of things about your populations 
And there are health systems that just don't know those things yet. They don't have a quantified, if I move my, my diabetic retinal screening up by two percentage points, what does that actually mean from a bottom line standpoint? Because you have to know all of the different payers that you're engaged with or that you potentially would engage with, how they're going to write those contracts, what that's going to mean from a practical achievement standpoint, where are you likely to move the needle to, and then do all the forward-looking analytics and analysis as that occurs. And, so, and it's also very hard to prove an event that didn't, you know, you're proving a non-event in those cases and those business cases. And so it's much easier to come to the table with something that says, oh, well, hey, you can use this now. You don't have to reinvent or change the paradigm um, yet, but it allows you to. And as that, as those payers become more aggressive, as you start it be, being more all in with those types of negotiations, then you can move into that and shift how you're measuring that success. Makes a lot of sense. So Damon, like I mentioned earlier, like you're really big on collaboration. And I wanted to highlight something. During COVID, your team led a very sincere effort to collaborate with basically the whole region, but looking at regional data scientists and other hospitals in the area, basically just to ensure that learnings were very quickly distributed across the network and making sure no hospital was too overwhelmed. And this collaboration was intrinsically the right thing to do. I think everybody agrees on that, but it really goes against kind of this competitive nature that we have, especially in the United States with our current system. I'm curious, like, what were some of the biggest learnings that you had from that effort? And how do you think that type of collaboration can impact in the future if we do move to more of this value-based care model? Yeah. I think the, one of the biggest takeaways, it's not really surprising, but it was just really impressive to see was the amount of talent that was that was just spread throughout healthcare. Like healthcare attracts folks that are mission oriented, and they stay in healthcare because of the work that they're doing. And so to see the bright minds all pooling their best talents for the benefit of the greater good was just incredibly inspiring. It was, and it was, um, it was just spectacular the types of things that they were able to bring to the table in such a short period of time. And it was only made possible because they were all sharing notes and ideas. And that I, that idea to product, if you will, cycle was exponentially decreased because just because of that connectivity and that network. Um, but I think it also highlights in the larger value-based scheme of payment and that shift that we've been talking about, how exciting those types of things are. Because there is nothing that unleashes a creativity and a different perspective like the alignment with value. You know, in, in a case where no one is really being inflicted moral injury up upon their vocation, where they're, where everyone wants to keep the patient healthy, they want to reduce length of stay, they want to take waste out of the system. They want to, to um, find interesting and novel ways to support their clinical staff in the office or the hospital because that translates to better care, that we care for the caregivers. All of those things align. And it is just, it, that was a microcosm that we saw of the larger opportunity space. And when we're all sort of sharing, can you now? Not to be naive, but you know, we all th there's 
some level of competition that, that will probably always exist. And if it's not between the traditional competitors in the space, it's going to be between the traditional and non-traditionals, the startups and the disruptors and the incumbents. But setting that aside, caring effectively for a community, whether that's my patient or your patient, is going to lift everyone's uh, boats. That's a rising tide for the health systems, for the non-traditional employers, for the patients and the community. It's just an incredible alignment. So, you know, one of the things that, that we saw at the start of the pandemic was you know, when there was a crisis and when providers had to respond and mobilize quickly to stand up telemedicine and do way more visits than they ever did, we got it done. And I think that showed that even though people kept saying, well, healthcare is too slow to innovate and move, clearly when our backs were against the wall, we could do it. Now that started to settle down somewhat. And it makes me wonder how much more we could do, how much more quickly we could innovate if the right incentives were there. And hopefully don't need a crisis every time to, to move. But I'm curious, um, in your role kind of leading clinical innovation at Mercy, how do you think about creating more momentum and urgency to innovate when maybe sometimes not all the incentives are there to change? Yeah, it's a great question. I think about every day we come to, to work and think about enhancing, expanding the opportunity space to be at the top of your vocation for physicians, for nurses, for support staff, doing the things that attracted you to healthcare in the first place. And one of the reasons that historically healthcare has moved slowly is that there is so much burden that has been inflicted on all those caregivers. And they truly don't want one more thing, even if they know that one more thing is something that in the end is going to be beneficial to themselves, to the patient. They are just so overburdened with the complexity of their day-to-day and the things that we have asked them to do. Hey, doc, can you put this one more piece of information in? It'll be really great if you could. And now we're in an era where we have to give back. And that is our challenge. That's our mandate, frankly. So that opportunity space that you create by hewing to those um, kind of everyday type of of mandates and, and realizing that we are in that era, that technology and digital health allows us to come to work and think about what are we giving back? That is the thing. It's one of the key drivers of being able to move faster. Yep. I, I totally agree. It, it, it's yeah. interesting because like, we've even heard simplifying workflow and taking things away from, let's say, like unnecessary documentation in the EHR and things like that. Like you were saying, the goal is let's reduce the burden on our providers, but even sometimes that change management that's involved, it's hard to even realize that, okay, this is going to make my life easier because it's just things that we're so used to doing that it kind of gets in the way of of progress sometimes. I wanted to get your thoughts as well on, on healthcare, just given that it is a fairly risk adverse industry and there's good reason for that, but it really goes against kind of innovation. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on you know, how do you view that relationship and how do you still ensure that you're innovating? Are there any strategies that you're using in particular? Yes. You have to, I think, appreciate the level of complexity that you are working in. And that means that you have to bring a bunch of stakeholders into the conversation and go very deep in understanding 
what their actual problem is. Because they may say, here's the problem, but the, as you explore that, you realize, no, there's a lot of root causes to this. And maybe that's the problem to solve first. If you just hit on the superficial, just hit off the surface, you're going to make the mistake of thinking that this is complicated, but provided enough time, we'll just go through and we'll deconstruct the machine and then we can reconstruct it again. You have to appreciate the threshold of complexity because then you can design for that. You can design for the cases that you can anticipate. And that's where those edge cases, if you don't have a solution that can accommodate those, it is, it's a holdup. It causes you as a, a, you know, a solutions team, a lot of problems because as we contemplate applying that solution to the, this ecosystem, people just bristle at it. And so that's where I think some of that risk aversion comes from is not fully grasping the complexity of the problem. And we've seen this in some of the startups recently that have had regulatory agencies pointed directly at them because they they weren't necessarily getting deep enough into the complexity of the clinical arena that they were working in. Uh, and so we, we like to say, do no harm, move fast and heal broken things. You just can't break things. But if you understand that your job is to heal things that are broken, it, it lets you, it's kind of your, your magnetic north. I get that. You know, I, I also wanted to talk to you about, you, you're mentioning you know, these edge cases and can we actually work them into specific models that you, we have. You've shared in the past, as we push the limits on technology, and I want to bring up AI at this point, we need to pause. This is what you were saying. We need to pause and really discuss some of the bias that might be prevalent in our models. And like you were saying, there's edge cases and things that it can't necessarily predict for, or we can't explain it necessarily. Could you unpack what you were saying about bias in our models and some of your concerns that maybe some other innovators out there and digital health leaders have not accounted for? Certainly. So just the idea itself, when I have given a couple lectures to physician groups, and I, I think it's easier to understand bias when we use non-medical examples for machine learning models because it just it's we can visualize it a little bit better and so with all of these generative adversarial art agents that we can put in text and it creates art if you say show me a picture of a lawyer and all of a sudden you have 20 pictures of lawyers and they're all you know old white men that's a problem and so it's that type of bias that's encoded upstream in the data set that happens to machine learning models in healthcare. It's just harder to see because the output is a little bit more shrouded in the algorithms and the and the sort of the inputs into it into a model um, and the derivations. And so we have to be cognizant of that. And there's a couple ways that you can approach it. I think you can focus on remediating the model's outputs, or frankly, you can approach it by trying to remediate the model's input. And if you can get upstream of illness and get, uh, yeah, as, as our foundress said, uh, an idea of shifting left on those social determinants, but this is 200 years ago, so it's not a new concept, that might be more challenging, but it's the better of the two approaches because you're going after the root cause, right? If you have um, access and equity issues that sit way up here. And that is the precursor lesion, so to speak, to the machine learning model having a flaw. You can do all the downstream fixing you want, but any new development is going to potentially suffer from the same issue. 
So if you fix that upstream, you're in a, you're likely in a much better place, and then you can don't have to just really worry as much about that bias because you fix the thing that's causing the bias. So we have tools and really great innovations right now that we need to be using to fix that abscess and equity problems that have really hampered democratizing the best medical care across our communities. And one that I'm actually advising on is a company that's pretty interesting. It's called Catalyst.io. Um, um, so Catalyst, but with an R. And this is a group that is putting together a matchmaking service that takes advantage of the, I would say, the superpowers of our providers that may not be apparent. Things that really allow provider to connect better with a particular marginalized community with particular characteristics. So that provider may have lots of experience dealing with refugee populations. That's not necessarily something that's going to be promoted or even known about in a normal find a provider type of infrastructure. This is a way to surface those things, to make them apparent and really to improve the equity of, uh, and, and access to care and, and improve the the likelihood that some of these marginalized communities are going to find a a very a sympathetic and aligned voice in the health system. So another area where, where, where I'm really excited about the work that Mercy is doing is in food pharmacy and nutritional deficiencies in, uh, in and across communities. And so it's not a surprise. I think there's a number of metropolitan areas like this where um, a difference of five miles in the urban area equates to a life expectancy difference of about 10 years. Wow. And that is shameful that we as a society put up with that. But we haven't really until recently had the data science tools to fully grasp and understand that. We knew in our gut that was there, but we couldn't just put it out and really starkly examine it and look, slice it from different angles and, and sort of understand the types of things that were feeding that disparity. And so... Now that we can, one of the things that we can go after is, well, um, we know that if you're trying to decide between taking medicine or eating healthy, that maybe you're going to not do either to the extent that you should do. And so we are, I'm very privileged to be um, being adjacent to a number of teams that are already architecting really compelling and interesting and innovative solutions to think about food and nutrition as another medicine in the armamentarium that docs have. And that idea applied to nutrition or other social determinants where you can just press a button as the provider and say, I know this is a need, I want to prescribe this. There is so much open space in terms of being able to make progress there. And I saw today an article saying that major payers, major insurance companies were spending less than 1% of their 2021 income on social determinants of health. Now, not to disparage them, I know that these are areas in speaking with a number of executives on, in multiple pairs that it, they know they need to do more work in this area, just like we know we need to do more work in this area. But it, it just highlights the fact that there's a lot of opportunity that's untapped at this point. I love that. And it kind of reminds me of like a tool I wrote this article like, probably over a decade ago called Hot Spotters, where he tells the story of this patient with COPD who was bouncing in and out of hospital. And they couldn't figure out why that was the case until someone visited his home and he was living in an unsupported home that had a lot of triggers for his to exacerbate COPD. And they ended up actually funding to move into better housing. 
with fewer triggers in the environment. And that was much cheaper than treating him in the ED in the hospital every few weeks. And it makes you realize that when you want to deliver care, it has to go beyond hospital care or even community care. It has to go into social terms of health, into the home and all that. So I think that's a really great point. One last question I wanted to ask you before we got into the Fast Five Lightning Round. We're seeing this huge explosion now of patient-facing innovations. I'm sure a lot of CMIO 3.0 is getting more into that. We're seeing things like chat bots, digital care journeys, remote patient monitoring. What are you most excited about today? So the I, the concept, and we use the term internally of hyper-automation, where we've got a confluence of these things to allow for top-of-license work, or as we talked about earlier, that left shift of preventative and proactive care is the thing that I it is so exciting. And to be able to use the big data tools, the, the data science uh, uh, approaches to understand for a population, what is this slice of this population need right now to stay healthy? And then to take those tool sets and push all of that care upstream in a way that unburdens our clinicians is truly going to be transformational. And we've done some of that work already where we know hey, here's a population of patients who need a particular test because of their clinical condition. And we can get all the way upstream with that, be integrating chatbots and messaging services and all of these things and give them a totally different experience that is much more proactive. It meets them where they are. It allows us to get the intervention that we know we need based on the evidence-based medicine. And we do that all in a way that doesn't require us to say, hey, doc, here's a big list of the patients that need X, Y, and Z. Can you go after and do those things? It's so it's a win on both sides of the equation. And so we think about our internal customers as our care teams and providers and our external customers as our patients. And the things that are the most durable, the solutions that you can build a foundation on are the ones where it's not a zero-sum game, where you're not asking someone else to compromise so then you can improve this experience over here, but that the experience is improved for both sets of customers. And in doing that, that then you just ensure, why would I stop doing this, right? It's better for me. It's better for my patients. It's more efficient. It pulls waste out of the system. We keep them out of the hospital. It's just, it's a no brainer. They want to continue to, to support that digital health innovation. And theoretically, it would be cheaper for the system as well. So it's a win-win-win. That's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Excellent. So, Damon, let's uh, shift over to what we call the Fast Five Lightning Round. This five All right. questions. I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> let's go. First question we have is, what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? So probably three. Like a classic one that I think is even more pertinent now is a book by Nick Bostrom. It's called Super Intelligence. And it's fascinating. The one that, that recently I think is a must read and probably should be in medical school curriculums is a book by Michael Lewis called The Premonition. So he wrote Moneyball, wrote The Fifth Risk. It's a book about the the pandemic and what preceded it, you know, all the systems that, that preceded that response. And it's fascinating. And then the last one is a, is by uh, the late Dr. Paul uh, Kalanithi. It's called When Breath Becomes Air. And the, the title is so prosaic and it just, it portends a beautifully written book about a doc that he's a neurosurgeon in his fellowship and ended up with a terminal cancer. And it's gorgeous. It's very 
Um, you can read it in, in, in a night. You, if you start it at 8 o'clock in the evening, you'll be up by at 4 in the morning finishing it. It's just lovely. Um, it was actually finished by his wife uh, the last yeah. uh, chapter or two because he passed away before he finished it. Um, it's just it's amazing. Wow. Question two that we have, who is a person, either dead or alive, who you'd love to meet? Uh, John Stewart, without a doubt. <laughs> Awesome. Question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? Uh, mind reading. We try to do it anyway when okay. we're talking with all of our stakeholders <laughs> about, tell me what the problem is that we're really trying to solve. So we could be more efficient at that for sure. Yeah, I love that. You can get to the root a lot faster. That's good. Now we do have a follow-up on that. What if you could not turn that power off? Yeah, it'd be tough. Just have to get a big set of uh, headphones with yeah. some white noise, right? Yeah, exactly. Blast it out. That's good. And for what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? I don't think clinicians would probably find this unbelievable, though the um, some maybe some outside of industry participants would, but doctors and nurses tend to be the most thoughtful, innovative, and creative-minded people in a healthcare organization. It kind of gets to what we talked about before as far as the constraints that that we've placed on them. Um, but I find that, you know, once they are on board with how healthcare is shifting and the fact that they know, hey, I've got a contact, I've got somebody who's interested in hearing about these these opportunities, boy, the ideas come fast and uh -huh. furious. And, and we, you know, we have trouble just intaking all of them because, you know, how do you put a great idea A ahead of a great idea B? Um, we That's that's a struggle that we have. Oh, that's great. Uh, last question that we have, this is more pandemic lockdown related question. What is one hobby or activity you've gotten into since the beginning of the pandemic? So vitriculture and and I'm an atheist. So we started grapevines and got some beehives uh, during the <laughs> so pandemic. Very cool. Uh -huh. So Vitriculture, that's a board game? Uh, yeah, it's like the old Monopoly. No, I'm just kidding. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's winemaking and grapevine growing. I see. Okay. Awesome. That's so great. That is amazing. That's a wrap for this episode of the Digital Patient hosted by CMOSMD. You can follow us on Twitter at CMOSMD. And if you like the podcast and you want to learn more, please visit www.cmos.md. Thank you again, Damon. It's been awesome talking with you. There's so much wisdom that you've scattered across this conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, had a great time. Thank you. Loved uh, the, the questions. Uh, wonderful conversation.